Exploring the intersection of medicine, sports, and pop culture. This is the Doctors Are People Too podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Josh Belfer. Welcome back to the podcast. We're back after a brief hiatus and we're excited to continue to bring you interesting, enlightening content. As we are just coming out of the Olympics and are in the midst of March Madness, today's episode is coming at the perfect time. When we think about elite athletes, we tend to think about the physical work it takes to get to the top. The early morning and late night hours working out at the gym, the constant dedication to improve your craft, to become a better shooter, to throw harder, to serve stronger. There's no doubt that it's the hours and hours of work that help separate average athletes from those who become elite. But just as important, and perhaps even harder to perfect, is the mental side to the game. You can practice in the gym for hours on end, but how are you going to respond when you face adversity? How are you going to handle being called upon with the game on the line? Will the moment be too big, or will you rise to the challenge? This is the side of sports that today's guest, Dr. Joel Fish, works on with athletes of all ages and skill levels. As the director of the Center for Sports Psychology, Dr. Fish helps athletes reach their full potential by focusing on the mental aspects of sports. Dr. Fish has extensive experience working with professional sports teams such as the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team and even with national teams and Olympic level athletes. As a sports fan, I had a lot of questions for Dr. Fish about what truly allows an athlete to become great. Dr. Fish and I had a great conversation around this topic and much more. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Joel Fish, welcome to the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We like to start all of our discussions here with this question. What is your typical morning routine? It's a good question. And, and the only reason I hesitate is part of why I really like the work that I do is that every day is different. So I can't say that every morning routine is the same. But more often than not, I'll get up. Um, I like to exercise in the morning take a little jog. It's about a mile at the most to a local coffee shop, get my coffee, come back, just sort of um, take a shower, have my coffee. And in, in my own, every day is really different. And so in my own mind, I sort of organize like, what are my meetings for the day? But what are my, if you will, priorities for the day? I have different kinds of clients, some that are ongoing clients, some that are more comprehensive. Um, I always look at what I have to do with my family first, then second, what, what do I need to do with my more comprehensive clients? Then I'll go to just day-to-day -day kind of meetings or presentations that I have to do. Uh, late afternoon, early evening, I'll usually try to set up some individual appointments if I can in the sports psychology area, and then read the paper and get ready for the next day. I like it. And maybe throw in a Sixers game or a Phillies <laughs> game, depending on the season. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, to the area of psychology and specifically sports psychology? I, knew, I always knew I wanted to be a, a, in psychology. Like other people, there's some decisions I think I make easily and some I don't make so easily. But when I went to college, Clark University up in Worcester, Mass., I was came in the first day wanting to be a psych major. Clark is known for its psychology department. It's the one place in the country Sigmund Freud spoke at, so they still get a lot of mileage out of that. And so I, but I always loved sports too. Played sports in high school, baseball player, played a little bit at Clark and sports editor of the paper there. So I've, I've always just been interested in the world of sport and in the world of competition. And 
did a master's at Temple in community mental health and then had a chance to go to Wisconsin for my PhD. And they had a track where you could do all your internships with the athletic department. And I said, I like sport. I like psychology. Why not? And I'd like to tell you that it was really more well thought out than that, but that's what happened. And then when I emerged from there, I worked outpatient for a while, which was a tremendous learning experience, particularly in psychology, sort of grassroots. And I did that for several years, three years. And then I worked inpatient for three years, short-term acute inpatient psychiatric hospital. And then I went to, I was interested in dabbling in the sports psych area. I went down to a conference at, at the University of Virginia where there was really not too many graduate programs in sports psychology. That was really known as one of the founding programs. And I came out of that saying, you know, I have an opportunity to blend a lot of what I do. Why don't I give it a shot? And I was teaching at St. Joseph's University at that point. I was the adjunct teaching at nighttime. And the 76ers used to practice at St. Joseph's University. And so I had a chance to go over there, meet Jimmy Lynham and some other folk. And they were interested at that point in finding someone to do personality assessments for their potential draft picks. So... Brad Greenberg was a general manager at that point, Johnny Davis. And so I did the class of 96, which is still, you know, the Sixers had the top draft pick at that point. And none of this is confidential, which is important for me to say to you. But the first time I really entered this world of sports psychology, I had a chance. The first five guys was Allen Iverson. It was Stefan Marbury, Marcus Camby, um, Ray Allen, and Kobe Bryant. Those were the first five guys. And so... It's a small world, the world of sport, as big a world as it is. And so an entree to the Sixers led me to do more work with them, which led me to do work with the Phillies and with the Flyers. And I opened up the Center for Sports Psychology in 1986 and went from part-time really to full-time over the years. And um, I've really been doing sports psychology full-time since the early 90s. That's some draft class to start with. You couldn't go wrong with any of those guys. <laughs> And as you work in the field of sports psychology and the Sports Psychology Center, like you just mentioned, you've worked with all different types of athletes, all different levels of athletes, high schoolers, college, professional, Olympic athletes. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into what are the types of, of things you work with them on? Uh, does it depend on the level of the athlete? Are there things that kind of run the gamut no matter what level of athlete you're speaking with? Well, the Center for Sports Psychology, we work with people of all ages and skill levels from little kids, as you said, all the way through the Olympic and professional rank. And the entree is usually performance. I'm in a slump. I want to develop my mental game. You know, the first question I'll ask an individual or I've asked this to literally thousands of athletes, all ages and skill levels, is what percentage of performance is mental? 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%, 80%. And if we define the mental game as confidence, composure, concentration, communication, cohesion, fancy word for teamwork, I mean, I, I, it could be football, it could be field hockey, it could be swimming. Athletes are always saying the game's largely mental, 30, 50, 80%. So if the game's largely mental, what we do is help to develop a mental skills game plan, build on your strengths, set goals, and teach techniques how to improve could be positive self-talk, relaxation, focusing, mental preparation, visualization. Interestingly enough, and this is why I really appreciate my psychology background, I'm a licensed psychologist by background, the majority, the vast majority of the cases that come into us are for performance, 
but I'd say half of the cases in five or 10 minutes, you're talking about their mother, father, sister, brother. It's really a psychology issue. And so why I love sports psychology is it gives me access to a pool of people who I may not get to see otherwise. B, sports is an arena in which to learn life skills, which is really what's most interesting to me. And so, you know, there's the art of it too. Like what percentage is sport? mental skills training, and sometimes that's just what it is, or what percentage of psychology, because in my opinion, if some, if the root of the issue in performance is really psychology, mother, father, sister, brother, relationships, self-confidence, one really needs to address that and get to the root of that. Otherwise, the, the techniques, the skills that I can teach you aren't going to stick. You might get a blip out of it for one game, but, but to really have it be internalized and stick. One really has to have a solid psychology foundation. So it's turned out to be a world that's really been of interest to me, both personally and professionally, both from a psychology point of view, but also from a performance point of view. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction you make in terms of the, the separation between the psychology part, the sports-specific part. I'm wondering if you tend to see athletes struggle more or have you know, more challenges in specific sports. Are there certain, you know, whether it's individual sports, whether it's team sports, are there certain sports that are more challenging on the mental health of athletes? Well, I think mentally, and then mental health to me is a different issue, but the mental part of the game with those individual sports clearly is most challenging. Golf, tennis, I just read something, you're actually hitting a golf ball three minutes of a round, and for the other three and a half hours, you're in your head, and no two shots are identical. So certainly individual sports have their own unique challenges. Um, whatever level you're playing in, no matter what the sport offers different challenges, if you're playing in front of 20,000 people at the Wells Fargo Center, that's different than shooting free throws, you know, in your neighborhood. Um, so I, I think the mental game is challenging based on a person's personality. It's based on the kind of sport it's based on the level that you play. Um, but interestingly enough, Josh, as I think about this, th there's more in common with the different levels of sports in some ways that there are differences. For example, confidence is the foundation, whether you're playing a youth sport or the pros. In sports psychology, we always say confidence is like the foundation of a house. If it's solid, then you can build solid things on it. If it's shaky, then no matter what level you're on, your performance is going to be inconsistent. So I'm dealing with confidence issues from high school kids all the way through the Olympic and professional ranks. And, you know, there are other people as you work your way up that sometimes their talent has been so superior to everyone else. Their mental skills have never been challenged before. So, so for example, a couple of years ago, I was working with a guy in AAA baseball and the, the level next to the major leagues, first round draft pick. And, he came to me because he was having, couldn't sleep at night, anxiety attacks. Okay, tell me more. Well, I've been 0 for 15, my last 15 bats, struck out eight times. That's never happened to me before. I don't know what to do. And I'm thinking, I went 0 for 15 in eighth grade. You know, I had to learn some of those coping skills then. So when you're dealing with elite athletes, sometimes their talent's been so much better than everyone else that whatever growth they need in their mental skills or gaps they have in their mental skills training isn't really revealed until you get to the highest level. So what, what's interesting to me is just sort of assessing where the athlete's strengths are, where they need an improvement, what percentage of sport, what percentage of psychology, um, 
and then coming up with a game plan to help accordingly address some needs that a, that a person has. That's what my world is all about. Your answer brings the thought of Steph Curry to my mind in terms of confidence, because I think, you know, he's a representative of, you know, an incredible shooter in the NBA. It doesn't matter whether he's missed 15 straight times, he's going to take that next three. And I wonder, you know, thinking back at, at his path to the NBA, he went to Davidson, he was not a top recruit, he was not a number one draft pick. And I wonder how that plays into it in terms of facing animosity you know, not being the, the chosen one, for lack of a better word, and then coming to the NBA where you're always doubted. And, you know, you'll go 0 for 15, but you have that confidence that you're going to get that 16 shot. Am I uh, reading that right? Yeah, I, I, I think the Steph Currys of the world, the LeBrons of the world, the generational players are one in a million talent and a one in a million personality. I, I just think then unless you have both of those going for you, can't rise to the consistent level of stardom. Steph Curry or LeBron James. And there are just so many other factors there. Look, he had a father who was an NBA player. I've seen that really help people. I've seen it really be a burden for people. That he went to a smaller school, Davidson, not a Power 5 school. Did that fuel his motivation? Or maybe at that time in his life, it built some security for him. So I just don't think there's one path to superstardom. The one factor that I can just say is the Steph Curry's of the world have a special talent, one in a million, one in a million personality. And you don't get to the NBA unless you have a special personality. It's not just talent. Otherwise you just get weeded out of the system. So I'm just interested clearly in those superstars. And also the special part of their personality is that they can stay grounded with not only success, but they can stay grounded with adversity, the, the hunger factor that the Steph Currys have, the Tom Brady's have, that's unusual to say the least. It's human nature when you've succeeded at that level, you exhale a little bit, you wanna cut a corner, you just don't have that same drive. That's why it's so hard to repeat as a champion. So the individuals, the Serena Williams of the world, I mean, that are able to sustain that standard of excellence over a period of time and be consistent with their performance one in a million talent, one in a million personality. They're, they're, they're a rare breed, both physically and mentally. And we'll get back to the NBA in a little bit. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about youth athletics and youth sports. And I'm curious, you know, from my perspective, the transition or the, the sort of shift in terms of youth athletics is that kids are becoming more specialized at an individual sport more. And certainly I see that in the emergency room when they're coming in with injuries, having pitched a, a tournament ball all year round, which is, you know, when I grew up, we played soccer, we played basketball, we played baseball. What is the psychological impact on athletes? And maybe a better question is when you're seeing youth athletes in your clinic, how are the youth athletes of today different than say 10, 20 years ago? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. And first off, I can't paint everybody with the same brush for, for some kids. Specialization is great. The more, the better. But if you're asking me how things have changed, and if I took 500 boys and 500 girls, what generalizations would I make? More isn't always better. And, you know, I'm old enough that there used to be an ethic in our, in our culture. It didn't matter whether you won or lost, it was how you played the game. That, that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there was a better balance with, with the ethic of, it didn't matter whether you won or lost, it was how you played the game. Vince Lombardi comes along, and whether he said it or not, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. That ethic has really caught on in our country. 
And so that's really driven the specialization that, that winning is the goal of the competition. And because of that, I think among youth sport, it's really led to specialization. And for some kids, that's great, but there's all kinds of evidence to show that playing multiple sports is better for your coordination. It's better for your socialization. You're more likely to sustain it over a long period of time. But I, but I work with a lot of parents and most parents are very, very well-intentioned. They just want to give their kids all the opportunities to be the best they can be. I remember my son, Eli, always tells me, don't don't talk about me so much on these podcasts. We have seven kids on our block. They're around Eli's age. This is about, about 15 years ago. And Eli was the only one who wasn't going to a sports specialty camp. He was going to a general summer camp. But the idea of falling behind, the idea of wanting our kids to have all the opportunities has really taken a lot of parents and really put them on a track where they feel in order to advocate for their child, in order to give their kid the best chance, we need to travel team elite 12 months a year. Intellectually, they may have some concerns about that, but in terms of their actions and behaviors, has the pendulum swung as far as it's going to go? I don't know. But I, I am very interested, especially with the fact that we just finished the Winter Olympics. And our country doesn't do it like every other country does. Norway, which is a country of 5 million people, won more Olympic medals, including gold, in the Winter Olympics than any other. They don't allow league play until 13 years old. They offer every kid, no matter what your talent is, equal access to learning and improving. They put all their coaches through training to learn how to coach a nine-year-old as opposed to a 19-year-old. A talented child compared to someone who may not be so talented. And so our model is in many ways really problematic. And I think it's important to really try to honestly look at our model, specialization concluded, compare it to countries like Norway who do it a different way. And I'm hoping, as someone who advocates for change in our youth sports system, that at some point the pendulum will swing and we'll get back to a more balanced approach, which would include multiple sports, defining success along dimensions other than just winning, and just keeping our kids' needs on the front burner, if you will, and our needs on the back burner, that the three pillars of youth sport is participation and enjoyment and improvement. And and I'm still confident we're going to get back to that, but I think we've lost our, that being the bullseye of what's behind most of our youth sport programs these days. When you bring up the Olympics, I think it does serve as an interesting comparison of how our country manages athletes as, as compared to other countries. Certainly one of the big stories out of the Olympics was in a women's figure skating and the final, and there was some criticism even by the, the Olympic committee chief about how the Russian coaches treated their athletes after they had won. Are there other things? I won't ask you specifically about that case necessarily, but when you're watching the Olympics, what else stands out to you? I, I you know, I'm watching to see how many, you know, flips the the skiers and the snowboarders can do. But as you watch it, are there other things that stand out to you in terms of you know how coaches manage their athletes, how yeah, the yeah. athletes interact with each other? Yeah, gosh, it's so rich with competition and what you can learn from it. To me, is I think about your question. Um, there's two things that just 
after many years of doing this intrigued me. One is how people perform in the last two minutes of a game. And that would be more of a team sport like, like hockey or in the Summer Olympics basketball or how people perform in the ninth inning of a game or 0-0 zero, zero and the balls in our end because I just think there's a certain set of mental skills that's required to uh, perform under pressure, if you will, what we call mental toughness. And you see this all the time in, in any sport. And then the other piece that really leaps out at me is is favorites versus underdogs. Like, how does the favorite respond and how does the underdog respond and why? Psychology is always asking the question why. And I saw something recently that really caught my attention because it really matches my experience. They ask professional athletes. These were pro athletes, a very well done study, male, female, individual sport, um, team sport. Would you rather be the favorite or the underdog? This is at the pro level. 75% of the pros said they'd rather be the underdog. Why? Well, you've got less to lose. And that's compelling to me of how people either embrace being the favorite because you can do that. Today's my day. I feel like a champion. My body's like, well, bring it on. Or you are able to just more relax and stay composed when you're the underdog, nothing to lose. And so I'm always assessing with athletes, do you prefer favorite underdog? Why? Um, let's visualize you being in the lane and the person next to you has got a big reputation. How do you feel? What are you thinking? Let's come up with a plan for your feelings, your thoughts. And I think in the Olympics, you see this played out so many times. And we can analyze it all day, all night long. The thing about sport that's so compelling is you can't script it. You and I could visualize all day, all night long, and the ball may bounce a quarter inch one way versus another, and you can't plan for that. So, so the Olympics, though, to me, just are just full of what the challenges are related to competition. I'm just continuing to be very interested in how people respond to, the, to those challenges. And speaking on the pressures that athletes face, one of the things we saw in the Olympics, but really over the last couple of years, is the interaction of fans with players. And at the beginning of COVID, when we had NBA players, NFL players playing in empty stadiums without fans, what was the effect on not having fans on those athletes? And what is the mindset of professional athletes, specifically when they're playing in front of a Wells Fargo Center with tens of thousands of people versus an empty stadium? Are they still able to really dig deep and get that same intensity? Well, so much has changed with that question with social media, I think the question really differs now than it. social media in sport and fitness and recreation at all levels has been a game changer, just like it's been in all our lives. And so I saw something recently where more and more fans, when they're on talk radio or uh, talking with their friends, we won, we lost, that we have so much access to these athletes now. We identify with them in a certain way as, as if we know them. And in some ways we do. So I think that when we weren't able to watch, root, even have games, I think there was a real void at so many levels. Some people look at sport as entertainment. Some people look at sport as a diversion. Some people look at sport as a catharsis for their own competitive experience. And for 90% of the people, they have their identity and then they're a fan of sport. There's another 10% of people where they're really wrapped up. This is this is who I am. And if the Eagles win, they're going to be happy for the rest of the week. And if the Eagles lose, they're not going to be happy for the rest of the week. And, and, and 
So we're all that to some degree, but I mean, it really can be the primary form in, in affecting their emotions. So, you know, not having sport or modified sport really impacted based on what the needs are that are fulfilled by sport. For a lot of people, it's just social. They like hanging out with other people and they couldn't watch games that way. And from the athlete's perspective, I it, there too, there's such individual differences. Uh, I mean, there's some guys when they're competing, it would be like me and you competing on the schoolyard. Like at that moment, it's me against you and they're not even aware of the environment. There's other folks certainly that are fueled by crowds cheering and as a medical person, you can explain what happens with the adrenaline and, and everything physiologically that goes along when you have people cheering you in, in the crowd. And then there's other people, the cheering doesn't do it for them, it's the booing that does it. And there's just a challenge of being in a way arena that really helps them to focus and helps them to sustain their focus. So all this was, I think, impacted by you know, fans in the seats, not fans in the seats. And I'll tell you, when I do these interviews for the NBA players, I've done it for 25 years. Sometimes, you know, the first question I'll ask and between me and you, it's because I'm still trying to learn how they do it. Like, what would I be like in that situation? It's more for me than it is for the interview is like, you're shooting a foul shot in front of 40,000 people. I talked to someone who was, you know, in the NBA finals, like, how do you feel? What are you thinking? Are you aware of that? Because I'm thinking if I was there, I, I'd just be wanting to hit the rim, you know, let alone make the shot. And there's a variety of answers. There's some that are just so able to kind of lock in on the basket and the task at hand. They say once the ball goes up, they're not really aware of the 40,000, 60,000 playing in front of millions of people. And there's others who are very aware of it, you know. I had a guy, he was um, also in AAA baseball. And number another high level draft pick. He said there can be nine thousand and nine hundred ninety nine people cheering for me. If there's one person booing for me, I, I can't get it out of my mind. Never made it out of AAA, you know, because he just couldn't overcome that makeup, that tendency. So individual differences for sure, but a special personality, special talent to rise to the elite level these days, because there's so many ways physically and mentally you can be derailed. Um, I'm always impressed by people who, who get there and stay there. You mentioned social media. I think we could probably spend a whole other hour on social media and how that's affected athletes. But as we start to wind down here, I want to speak a, a few minutes about mental health. I think over the past five years, seeing professional athletes speak out more about their mental health, I think it's become less of a taboo. My question is when it comes to the fans and the media, whether it's the fans on social media, whether it's the fans yelling things out at the games, how are we supposed to approach athletes that may be struggling with mental health issues that, you know, for whatever reason and justifiable reason may not be, you know, open about it with the public, which is understandable, but how are we supposed to interpret when a player potentially does not succeed at a big moment and we find out later that, you know, this is a struggle that they've been having mentally for a while. How are we supposed to approach that discussion? I think there's a lot of different ways on social media, on the news, how people react to news stories coming out. What should we think about when we think about athletes and mental health struggles? Step one, and this is going to sound basic, Josh, is to remember these aren't machines and these aren't robots. These are folks with flesh and blood. And just because you're big and strong physically doesn't necessarily mean you're big and strong emotionally. I've dealt with so many 
high school and college look like a man and a, and a grown woman, but they're 16, 17, 18 years old emotionally. And when you watch them on TV, it's just really hard to relate to that. And that to me is, is step one. Step two, there's something in our culture again, and I get it. I love sports and I love being a fan. So I'm not really just that if we go into arena is a way to be entertained or is a way to enjoy the experience that the norms of what is appropriate behavior is different than in the regular world. I've seen a lot of evidence, you know, going back to that famous incident in Philadelphia where they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. Um, it was mostly men, not necessarily young men who were driving that. It wasn't drunken, rowdy teenagers that were doing it. And so there's something in our culture that if I pay my 15, 20, 30, 100 bucks, it gives me a license to say some things, do some things that I wouldn't do in other social situations. And I get that. I love being a fan, but there needs to be some boundaries to that too. And that letting your hair down, if you will, enjoying yourself doesn't give you license to be so personal to some of these athletes and talk about their mother, father, sister, brother, the way they look. They, I mean, I think I, I thought I heard it all. And then these are college games, you know, just some of the things that fans will say that are so personal. We've got to take a look at what the norms are for fan behavior. I really believe that. And there's all kinds of evidence that the same percentage of athletes are going to struggle with clinical anxiety, stress, depression is in the non-athlete population. And it's not as if the athlete population is because they're so physically gifted, don't necessarily have to deal with a lot of the same emotional issues that everybody else does. And I'm not saying their lives are any easier, better, or worse, but there are some special stresses and pressures in that world that most of us don't have to distractions, temptations. So for us to be mindful that we're dealing with flesh and blood here, these are people who are basketball players who are athletes. They're not just athletes, if you will. Um, I just think it's really important. And I'm not saying we can't boo. And I'm not saying we have to, you know, cheer everybody. But I do think there needs to be better boundaries to that. And I think that within the locker room itself, there's some, been some really good changes. Like the first step towards being able to say publicly, I'm struggling with depression. And my experience is being able to admit it to oneself, then admit it to one te one's teammates. How are they going to react to me? Then how's the organization going to react to me? Then how's the public going to react to me? And the good news is I've been involved in a lot of incidents where people have talked to, admitted to themselves and talked to their teammates. These are pro teams I'm dealing with, I'm struggling with. Everything from anxiety, stress, alcohol, relationship issues. And that what's shifted is there's been a real acceptance within the locker room of the humanness of their teammates. And that's been a big change. It's given a lot of athletes courage to then more publicly state it. Because there used to be, and there still is, we're not, we have a lot of room to grow. But in the sport world, and this could be high school, college, Olympic, pro, that somehow, admitting to anxiety, stress made you soft, if you will. And soft is not a term that an athlete wants to be labeled with. It's just not. It's, and to this day, it's, it's, so 
the good news is we're we're separating what being flesh and blood means, and we're we're giving our athletes now um, a whole range of resources that weren't there before. There's an understanding that we have to develop the whole person as well as the athlete. So I was on the forefront when I was doing sports psychology with the Philadelphia Pro Teams. Now every major league team has someone like me connected to them. There's just a much greater umbrella of strength and conditioning, nutrition, sports psychology. Let's develop the whole person, and that will help better develop the athlete. So as fans, I think we need to understand all this and set some boundaries for what's appropriate and inappropriate, but always keep in mind that these are people who are playing sports, and yes, you know they're here to entertain us, but that doesn't give us license to treat them in an abusive way or different than we would treat other people who we were, you know, watching or interacting with. And Joel, my final question to you, and admittedly, as a Philadelphia sports fan, <laughs> we could, I may have to have you back to ask all of my Philadelphia questions. <laughs> For those in our audience who are interested in pursuing a career like yours in psychology, in sports psychology, what advice do you have for them? Well, I, this is me. This is one person's opinion. Um, the fact that I came up through a psychology route has been really important for me. Um, and there's all kinds of great programs out there in terms of mental skills training. Those are terrific. I'm just saying I like being rooted in, in the world of psychology, quite frankly. And my advice is that the field is growing. The field, you know, I, I've, I've, I've gone through all the ups and downs, Josh, of anyone who's developed a business. The one thing I haven't taken my eyes off of is that I thought the field was going to become more well-established. And I've been right about that. And the field's going to continue to grow. Um, we need good people to work in such a variety of areas. It could be sports parenting, where our worlds overlap. I'm doing a lot in the psychology of injury and rehabilitation. That's where the medical world and the psychology world are really going to grow together, I believe. There, there's just a lot of growth um, in terms of team building and how to teach life lessons through life skills. So. I just, the advice I would give is is just maintain confidence that the field has grown. And there are not that many people that are doing it full-time like me, but I think that percentage is going to increase. The number of graduate programs are increasing, the number of options, um, sports psychology is becoming more mainstream, and I see that trend continuing. So um, I just want to encourage people who are still wondering about this relatively new field. What does the future look like? I, I think it looks very bright. And I just want to say one last thing about medicine again in, in psychology. And I really appreciate having a chance to speak with you because a lot of the techniques that I've been utilizing in the world of sport are now, are now expanding to the medical field in the sense of pressure performance, in the area of stress management, in the area of sustaining focus. Like you and your colleagues are elite performers, if you will. And there's a lot more that I know I've been doing in the world of medicine, medical education, skill building, that I also see is a trend that's going to continue. Because if I ask medical doctors, and I have asked many of them, doing a lot more in the medical world these days, what percentage of performance is mental? 
confidence, composure. They give me the same percentages as, as athletes. So if the game is 30%, 50%, 80%, if medicine is performing, let's teach some skills to help our medical people be more in control of their emotions rather than their emotions being controlled of them. Learn how to be the calm in the midst of the storm. Learning how to sustain focus, block out distractions. So what excites me about the sports psychology and what they're now calling more sport performance or perform psychology of performance is that people like myself are going to be overlapping more with people like you. And I, I, I'm excited about that trend. And I have every reason to believe that trend is going to also continue. Joel, this has been great. I, I've really enjoyed hearing your interesting insight into the world of athletes. So Dr. Fish, thanks for joining us on the Doctors or People 2 podcast. Thank you, Josh. I enjoyed speaking with Dr. Fish about the mental side of sports. As I discussed with him, the Olympics provide an excellent case study on how athletes handle perhaps the most intense pressure in all of sport. Think about Nathan Chen, for example. An ice skating phenom in his teens, Nathan entered the 2018 Olympics as the favorite for gold. After a disastrous skate, Nathan was quickly out of the running for the podium. You can only imagine his sadness and frustration going from the high hopes of gold to out of contention with a single skate. In fact, he described his 2018 Olympics as the worst moment of his life. Fast forward to the 2022 Olympics, where Nathan skated with that same pressure and expectation of a top slot. And this time, his dreams became a reality, as his record-setting performance won him the Olympic gold. To understand Nathan Chen's perseverance is to realize the importance of the mental side of sport. As he began his skate in the 2022 Olympics, it's hard to believe that he wasn't thinking about the failure he had experienced in the same position four years prior. It's a testament to both his physical skill and talent, but also his mental strength that Nathan took the podium at this year's Olympics. What's even more incredible, Nathan is only 22 years old. I'd love to hear your thoughts on my discussion with Dr. Fish. Be sure to reach out through our social media pages. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to share it with your friends and family. Follow us on our Instagram page at Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Do you have a question or a comment on the show? Maybe a guest recommendation? Direct message us on our Instagram page. Until next time, this has been the Doctors Are People 2 podcast. Take care.